We, uh, this summer, are in a series on the book of Nehemiah, shorter book in the Old Testament, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. I hope you are too, and uh, this morning, we're going to press pause, not on the series itself, but we're going to highlight an important person in the story arc of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall, and we're going to look at one of the prophets at the time called Malachi. And Malachi wrote a book, too, that's in the Bible. But Malachi, he was used in, in partnership with Ezra and Nehemiah to be a part of this process of not only rebuilding the wall, but rebuilding the people. And one of the reasons we chose to do this book at this time as a church was we're in the process of building something, building something that we're all excited about and looking forward to, and that is our church building. And uh, as we prepare for that, this book offers the opportunity to look and go, in the rebuilding of the wall, yeah, important, but God wanted to rebuild the people and the hearts of the people as well. In fact, it doesn't do much good, to, I think, to rebuild the wall if the people's hearts aren't changed. And I honestly don't think it's much good if we build a church building and we don't see people's hearts changed and transformed. So as we prepare and as we see this building of a church building, this series offers us an opportunity to prepare our hearts, to look inward at ourselves and recognize maybe things in my life that need awakening or rebirth. And so this morning, as we look at Malachi, we're going to read a message that was often the message of the prophets. The prophets were, you know, I think a lot of times if you hang around churches long enough and you, you start to gain an understanding of prophets, we, I think, mistakenly jump to like future tellers. You know, the people that, that tell the future and know what's going to happen. And there's an element of that in prophecy. But prophecy, I think, fundamentally is more truth. They're truth tellers. They do a lot more truth telling than they do, like, prophetic future telling. And the role of prophet today in the church is, you know, just as important. And there are people in this church who have the gift of prophecy. It doesn't mean they know the future but they know truth, and God's called them to speak that truth. And Malachi is a prophet who God has called to speak the truth. A lot of the times, what God called the prophets to do was to wake people up, to sort of shake them out of their sinful slumbers. I hate getting woken up. I, I think I was scarred as a kid, love my father, but the way he would wake me up compared to my mom was just, it was diabolical. My mom, I, I remember as a kid, my mom would just kind of sneak into my room and she'd like re-tuck me in and, you know, go, Aaron, Aaron, it's time to wake up. And I'd just slowly open my eyes and feel nice, warm, and cozy. Look at my mom, be like, 
okay, I'll be up in a minute. My mom would kind of tiptoe back out. My dad, on the other hand, this is how he would come in. I'm sleeping in bed, and the door would be shut, and he literally, I don't know what it is, but there's certain people that, like, they just walk heavier or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? And they just make more noise, whether they're walking or just sitting. It's just, they're loud, and my dad is one of them. And he would open the door, and it was opening. Aaron, Aaron, John, time to wake up. I mean, that's what, it was always Aaron, Aaron, John. And my resting heart rate went from, like, 60 to 110. Because, you know, if we were late for church, we might miss the rapture or something. I don't know. I mean, it was like, and late for church for us, if church, like Sunday school was at 9, late was 8.45 for us. We literally got there at 8.30 and we just sat. But we were there on time and I had been woken up. I, and it, it stuck with me. Just, I don't like being woken up. Do not like it. This morning, I heard my son at 6 a.m. making noise. Why? Don't. No. Much too early. So getting up, being woken up, I, I don't know if people, if there are people that like it, but most of us don't. And the reality is, most of the time, the people that the prophets are trying to wake up, they're similar to that, like, grouchy teenager who just wants to sleep in. I don't want to hear it. Leave me alone. I'm comfortable. I don't want to get up. And when you look at the story of the Old Testament prophets, a lot of them were shunned or silenced because they just the people didn't want to wake up. What areas in our life need to be woken up? What areas in our hearts, our souls? need to come out of a slumber? Where do we need to emerge out of sinful patterns, sinful slumbers, that if we're honest, are just wreaking havoc on our lives? If God looked at the deepest part of your heart and he exposed it, if everything about you was exposed, what would be revealed? If God had to testify on your behalf, I mean, God knows every part of you. There might be parts of your life that even your spouse doesn't know. I mean, God knows every corner of your life. He knows every thought, every motivation, everything you do when you think no one else is looking, God sees. If God were testifying on your behalf in a trial, and everything about you was to be exposed, what would God say? In the book of Malachi, the people are being exposed. The, re the darkest corners of their souls are, are being exposed. And the reality is God is seeing that the people have become lazy. The people are sinning, they're making bad choices, and they don't seem to care the people have developed bad habits and the people are doubting God in the midst of all of it. And God is saying, I need you guys to just wake up. The book of, of Malachi, the heart of the book of Malachi and the heart of the awakening that, that, that 
Malachi, Ezra, and Nehemiah want to do in the people during the rebuilding of the wall and the rebuilding of the people is to renew the people's covenant relationship with God. Malachi is a cool book, if you haven't spent any time in it. It's this dialogue between God and the people, this sort of back and forth. And there's a little bit of disputing going on. God's saying one thing, and the people are then going, no, I don't think so. They're saying another thing. But there's six major themes in the book of Malachi that, that, that Malachi, God covers in six major disputes, but I want to cover three of them with you this morning. The first dispute is around the love of God. Malachi 1, verses 1 through 2 says this, a prophecy, a truth. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? This first dispute, God says, I have loved you. I love you. And the people go, how? They, they, they have lost sight of what God has done. And this is, uh, it is a condition of the human heart that plagues all, 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 all of us at some point in our lives. That is, we, we quickly can lose sight of the good things God has done, the promises that God has fulfilled, the prayers God has answered. It can often become in our relationship, God, what have you done for me lately? This is why God, throughout the Bible, would be like, I need you guys to remember, erect like this pillar like, build this monument so that every time you go by it, you can say to your kids, that's when God did this. Like, the spiritual practice of remembering, we just don't talk a lot about. Because we must forget to remember. But the people have forgotten. Like, they can't even recognize all that God has done and how he's professed his love for them. The truth is, we often are so swept up in life and the busyness of life, we miss the smallest pieces of evidence every day that God loves us. Just waking up. We hurriedly get out of bed and we get into action without pressing pause and just going, I've opened my eyes today. Like, I want you, I want everyone right now just to close your eyes, okay? Close your eyes, and I want you to take three deep breaths. On that third breath, I want you to hold it. As you hold that breath, you should be able to pay attention to your heartbeat. Every beat is a gift. That right there is a gift. It is the gift of, of just God's love. Every breath that we get a chance to take is that God has given us life today. And we just so easily miss all these small moments and evident, evidence of God's love for us. And if we don't recognize God's immense love for us, 
we fundamentally will be taken off track in our relationship with God. Because God's love, it is the fuel of the Christian life. It's what leads us to following Christ. It's what leads us to repenting when we mess up. It's what leads us to love others. It's what leads us to worship. It's what leads us to everything we do as a follower of Jesus. And if we're not fueled with the love of God, then we're just plain religion. The people have been blinded to the love of God. Let me move on. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Blemish sacrifices. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? This is God speaking. If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how do we show contempt for your name? God is saying, look, you're not honoring me well. You're giving me leftovers. And they go, what? How are we doing this? How are we not respecting you and honoring you? God says in verse 7, by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? What is happening here? The people are bringing diseased animals to offer to God for sacrifices. When they were called to give God their best. Why? Because it was in response to the, like, all, they, God had given his best to the people. And instead, they start offering these blemished sacrifices, these, these blemished animals. And God's like, no, I require the best. Deuteronomy 17.1 says, Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. God, I mean, God says, look, you wouldn't even present like this to a, to a person, a man, like the governor. And you're, yet you're willing to present this, these blemished sacrifices to God Almighty? Now you go, well, I don't, we don't do the, we're out of the sacrificial system, and I don't know how this applies to me. Well, it certainly applies to us, because we are called to offer our lives as worship. And the question that we have to ask is, what am, what, what am I offering God? Someone or something gets the best of us. It could be our, it could be a relationship. It could be our job. It could be our dreams. And it's not that any of that stuff and pursuing and, and wanting any of that stuff is wrong. But sadly, it comes at the expense of God. God is not, it's tiered, like in a different way. Where God is below this stuff. And we end up just kind of handing over to God leftovers. And God's like, I don't want your leftovers. 
like, I, I give you my first. And the greatest example of God giving his first is his son. And so the question we've got to ask is, like, what am I giving God? Like, do, am I, do I give God first in my life, whether it's my time, my talent, my treasure, or am, am I giving leftovers? And then number three, and this fits into the same kind of theme, but verses 8 of 12 of chapter 3 are the people are robbing from God. They're taking from God what belongs to God. It says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Mind you, this is the only time in the Bible, at least that I can find, uh, where God says, go ahead and test me. I dare you. And it's around money. It's around stuff. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. It's really important to know right now that the people are being challenged because they find themselves at this time when this is being written in a, in a, in a drastic drought. See, it's, it's, it's easy to give when there's a lot. It's difficult to give when there's not so much. And that's often the test. Am I willing to give and, and, and trust God that he will pull through and provide for me when I could really use this in the midst of a difficult season? But God says, if you give me what is mine, first of all, that is, and I, I've mentioned this in sermons, it's not how much you're giving, it's how much you're keeping. Because it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't. You may have earned it, but at the end of the day, it's still God's. And whatever you've earned, it's because he's given you what you need to do that job and make that money. It's God's. So it's never the question, how much are you giving? It's how much are you keeping? And God says, look, if you just give me what's mine, I'm not even asking for all of it. The tithe means 10%. He's asking the people for 10%. And he's saying, look, I don't want your last 10% or what's left over. I want what's first. You give first. And honestly, I think the, a better way to live, if you give first and you live off the rest, often the story of people who do that is one where they experience God. They experience the blessings of God in different ways. And they often aren't people struggling with money, surprisingly. Why? Because God says, look, if you give me what's mine, I'm going to take care of you. It doesn't mean you give to get. It doesn't mean that you give and that uh, all of a sudden, you know, your, the stocks you're invested up are going to spike and you're going to make a lot of money. But God's going to, look, you trust me with your life. You're locked in, man. I'm going to take care of you. But if you don't create any space for God to provide for you, then you're just missing out on God. And money's the one that's toughest because money's the primary resource used to take care of ourselves. 
Put food on the table. Get shelter under our head. The people were keeping what belonged to God. And sadly, you have all this, and you have a people that, have, that, that don't believe God loves them. They're just giving leftovers, and they're, just, they're keeping what ultimately belongs to God. And I wonder if it sounds like us. Doubting the love, the incredible love God has for us. You know, just giving God what's there. If there's time to go on Sunday, we'll go. If there isn't anything more important, we'll sign our kids up for that. Or if season of life isn't busy, we'll join a small group. Or, you know, I got a bonus and there's plenty of money and we'll, we'll cut a check for 20 bucks. You got to ask yourself, is that, is that firsts or leftovers? And, and it's not to make us feel shameful, but you've got to go, what if God gave us his leftovers? You know, Jesus didn't even tithe his blood. You realize that? We take communion, we're drinking this juice, and it goes, I pour, this was poured out for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. It wasn't 10%. Give a hundred. And God's like, I'm not asking for a hundred, I'm just asking for your first fruits. So that you'll trust me and you'll see me come through and provide. A lot of people, I, I hate to say it, but they're missing out on God's movement and blessing in their life because they throw a measly 20 bucks in the offering plate. Or they're tithing 1%. You want to know what the average tithe of an evangelical Christian is in the United States? It's less than 3%. We're failing. We're not giving God our firsts. The American church is not giving God its firsts. You know, when it comes to our building and budget and everything, if this church, people who go to this church, we've done the, the math. If, if everyone gave 5%, we would be able to pay for the budget and the building. Not even 10. If, we, if everybody gave 10, we'd be able to do even more. Maybe build even more or give even more. It's a sad reality that in most evangelical churches, the vast minority of people are giving the vast majority of the funds. And I think it's a problem. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor. I'm saying that because it's true. I don't make any of the stats up. But what are, you know, at the end of the day, it's not like what we want from you, it's what we want for you. It really, it is. And it's like, what are you missing out? What am I missing out when I just hold tight to my stuff? And I hold tight to the, my life. And God's just like, man, I want more of you and I want you to have more of me and just... I want you to know my love and man when you experience my love like things change and when you trust me with all that you, I have like I don't let you go without in fact test me on it and you'll see I'll just I'll take care of you in ways that you you can't you you can't doubt the hand of 
you know, the mighty hand of my, my provision and my love for you. Let's not like start, feel bad and then you respond. I mean, Paul said that to the, to, in his letters, like don't give out of shame or guilt. But fix your eyes on God and what he's done and it changes your heart. Listen to chapter 3, verse 6. I'm the Lord that does not change. Here's a promise. I don't change. No matter how awful you are, no matter the leftovers you give or the things you keep for me, I don't change. Return to me, and I will return to you. That's what it says in verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you. No matter how far you may have wandered, if you turn to me, I'm there waiting for you. God's character doesn't change. He doesn't back out of his promise. And that should give us a solid foundation of faith and hope. Chapter 4, verse 2. But if you revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. I love that verse. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Now, we don't really jive probably with that language as much. It's a bit poetic. But in essence, he's saying, look, if you trust me, and you follow me, there's healing. And you will live as vibrant and health, like not spiritually healthy, as a, a well-fed calf frolicking in a meadow. God wants that healing for you. It's easy to hear sermons like this and you go, I've got to work harder, but that is not the answer. Brian will actually like this metaphor because he is a very uh, machine-minded person, and he always comes up with great metaphors. But this one, he's going to be jealous of. The Christian life, it is like a two-cycle engine. Two-cycle engines need both gas and oil. You need the mix. Otherwise, the engine doesn't run. Too much oil, engine clogs up and smokes. Too much, too little oil... It seizes up. Run hots. Parts aren't lubricated. You have problems. The Christian life is like a two-cycle engine. You've got to have a mixture of both the grace of God and, and, and the discipline. Thank you. <laughs> to do what he's asked us to do. Would you stand with me? God, it's always this sort of interesting balance where we, we're, we recognize the grace that is offered to us through Jesus Christ, that nothing uh, we do, no matter how good we are or our behavior, like none of that can fix the sin in our life. It, can, it cannot get us into heaven. That is grace and grace alone. It is this gift of grace. And yet, it doesn't mean that we just take that gift and we just go then live however we want and keep going about living a life that's contrary to what uh, the word, your word says, like the life you want us to live. So we, we, we embrace the grace of God while at the same time recognizing that the, 
right way to respond to this gift is a life you've called us to live. And that requires discipline. It requires a willingness to, to trust, to pursue, to keep going, to give, to serve, to love, to forgive. But it's all worth it, and it's all better. I don't think you're asking us to, you know, give up of ourselves and all that we have so that we can be miserable. It's quite the opposite. You're saying, look, look, I'm just, I've given you a, a way to live a better life, and I want a better life, and I want more for you. But we just get, we get led astray. We get, we, we become uh, blinded. We, we, we fall into to, to slumbers where, where we can't see or hear your voice. And I just pray, Lord, that our eyes and hearts and ears would be opened up, God, to just your calling in this season as a church. And the renewal that maybe you want to do in our hearts. It's never too late to experience the renewal of God. And you say your promises that you never change. And if, if we're willing to turn, you're there. And so just, God, what work in our hearts to see the things that maybe need to be woken up and changed. And, and help us trust that when we turn, God, you're there, and you're not only there, but you're going you're gonna to be with us every step of the way, and you're going to provide for us every step of the way. It's just who you are. Nothing changes that. So thank you. So to work in our hearts now as we sing these songs, work in our minds as we sing these songs. But Jesus, thank you for everything you've given. We pray it in your great name. Amen. There's nothing